Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Let's go ahead and just uh, come before the Lord and, and pray. Oh, precious, dearest, beautiful Jesus, we're obsessed with you. May we never change the dial. May we never change the subject. You're everything. You're the reason we live. You're the oxygen in our lungs. Lord, you're, you're not a side issue here. You're, you're everything. You're the, you're the reason we gather, Lord. And so, God, we just pray that this morning you would be high and lifted up. You would be exalted. and You would just get your reward, and your reward is our love. It's our adoration. So, bless this word, Lord. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Let's say amen. Amen. Uh, well, this morning, I'm going to continue on our series of talks called The Red Letters, which are the teachings of Jesus. And really, my heart this morning is just to take the baton from Pastor Nicole and build upon the foundation that she laid with the Beatitudes. Can we just thank her for everything she labored for? That was such a good... Amazing, amazing message. And so my heart is really just to take the baton from her and build on the foundation she let she laid for us on this topic of the Beatitudes. And my heart is not only to define what these Beatitudes are. I feel like we've done that well over the past couple weeks. But I want to move from defining what they are to how do we practically grow these eight virtues in the soil of our hearts. And the beautiful thing is, Jesus is never silent on the how-to. You know, anytime God raises a standard or says, these are the set of values I want to live by, he will always supply a grace to live according to those set of values. He would be a cruel father if he just said, okay, you're on your own, here's what I want, bye. But no, Jesus meticulously takes us by the hand in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount and tells us how to grow these virtues in our hearts. And so I want to get to that. I'm eventually going to get to that in the sermon, but, but I want to start just by doing an overview on the importance of the scriptures in this hour. If you haven't noticed, but the scriptures are under assault right now, not only in culture, but in the body of Christ. There's there's this thing rearing its head that many circles, many camps can't agree with the statement that says Jesus meant what he said, he said what he meant, and these are the authoritative word of God. We are coming into a time where even Christians cannot agree with that statement. And how many of you know that the the enemy, he doesn't come to us with a pitchfork and horns most of the time? (laughs) He comes disguised as what? The angel of light, right? And I I believe that. However, it seems that in this hour, the enemy is not even trying to hide itself anymore. Darkness isn't even trying to conceal itself. It is just right there in your face. You can't take your kids to a grocery store anymore without seeing darkness just right in your face. And what I want to say to encourage us is that anytime the enemy becomes so blatant and so obvious it is not, it's because, it's, it's not, the reason is, it's not because it's his best card. It is because it is his last card that he has to throw at us as believers. 
It is not his best card. It is his last card. And so that's what I want to give us as encouragement today, that as we come closer, the return of Jesus is imminent. And he's looking for a bride that has been washed by his word, washed by his word. We're living in a culture that says, I feel, therefore I am. And I, I, I tell our youth this all the time. Your feelings make great servants, but they are terrible masters. <laughs> and it's like, I can't control what feelings come to me, but I can control which ones I partner with. See, I'm not denying that feelings aren't real. Just because a feeling is real does not mean it's true, though. There's a difference between real feelings and true feelings, right? And what I like to say is, I can't keep a bird from coming and landing on my head, but I can stop it from building a nest. All that to say, I can't really control what feelings come to me, but I can control which ones I build a lifestyle on. And so when we're, when we're teaching this next generation that you are not your feelings, we have to teach them a higher standard to get, feel, to get truth from. And that higher truth is the scriptures. It, there's nothing beyond the scriptures. That's it, period. It is the scriptures. That's where we draw our identity from. That's where we draw our, our sustenance from is the scriptures. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will never pass away. I wanna suggest to you guys that even in heaven, we will be reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> heaven and earth will pass away, but the scriptures will never pass away. There have been armies that have been raised up throughout the millennium that have tried to destroy this word. And it's just laughable because we are going to be reading this in eternity. We're going to be reading the scriptures, the red letters in eternity. That's the weight of this. And so I want to just... My heart is to move us from approaching scripture as a more devotional reading where I check it off a box and move us into this is our life. Let's go on a treasure hunt into the word of God together. So I want to first do a little overview of the four gospels. So to, to first uh, illustrate what the red letters are, I want to illustrate the gospels that contain these red letters. So I have a little PowerPoint here. I'm going to feel, feel like a high school professor today a little bit. Um, if we could put that, uh, that first slide up there. So I, I really believe the way we should read scripture, the way I was taught to read scripture, to move from devotional reading to reading as a disciple is to first understand who is the author? Who is the intended audience? What was happening culturally at the time? How did this apply to that audience? Once we know that, let's make the cross over the bridge to how does that apply to us today and what we're facing today? And so each book, each gospel, there are commonalities in all four of them, but they are very unique and very distinct. The Holy Spirit uniquely and intentionally wrote these gospels through the work of men like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I just want to take a look at, at this, the book of Matthew. The audience Matthew was writing to was the Jewish people. That was his target audience. The focus of Matthew was Jesus as the son of David or the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. The word fulfilled is mentioned over 15 times in the book of Matthew. And so Matthew also has more Old Testament quotes than all the other three combined. 
So in other words, Matthew's revelation of the face of Jesus is Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That's his revelation. Now, Mark, his audience was the Romans. And his focus, instead of being as, on Jesus as king, he was emphasizing the servant heart of Jesus, the miracle worker of Jesus, the one who walked in simple obedience. He presents Jesus as that perfect workman who has that simple, quick obedience to the word of the Lord. There are more miracles and demonstrations of power in the book of Mark than any other gospel. Mark is the book of the miracles. The book of Mark uses the word immediately 40 times in the book. That's just him illustrating simple obedience, quick obedience. Jesus never asked God questions. He immediately did what he saw his father do. He heard what heaven was saying, and he acted on it. He was emphasizing the servant heart of Jesus. So the book of Luke, his audience was the Greeks, and his focus wasn't on Jesus as the, the king, the son of David. His focus wasn't on the servant of God, but his focus was on the humanity of Jesus as the son of man. So what Luke was trying to get at in his book is emphasizing that, yes, while while Jesus is 100% God and deity, he is also 100% flesh and bone, and he is a man. That's what he was emphasizing. And lastly, the book of John. His audience was to all believers in all generations. I love the book of John. That's probably like, if I had to pick one, that's my favorite one. His focus was on Jesus as the son of God. So he was emphasizing the perfect deity of Jesus. And, and so we can go ahead and uh, go to the next slide. What, what I want to get at, this is amazing, is that these four gospels directly correspond to the four creatures who are sitting around the throne of Jesus day and night shouting, holy, 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 holy. So read this. I want to read this. Revelation 4, 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. What do lions illustrate? They illustrate kingship, which corresponds to Matthew's declaration of Jesus is king. Jesus is king. It's the lion. The second was like an ox, and the animal of the ox represents the workmanship, the one who does perfect obedience to what the master is wanting. That's the ox. The third, which these are in order, by the way. Only the Holy Spirit can orchestrate this. The third had a face like a man. What is the third book? Luke. What did Luke emphasize? The manship of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the flesh and bone of Jesus. And lastly, the fourth was like a flying eagle, which in literature, eagles represent the deity that flies above the muck and mire of the world. This is the full picture of the face of Jesus from Revelation giving to us in print form. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, if I, (laughs) if I wanted to get a full picture of someone's face, I really would need four angles. The front the side, behind, and the other side. See, these four gospels give us in print the full portrait of the face of Jesus. I I know there's more that we're gonna see in heaven from, I'm just saying, this is orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. This isn't just men who decided to write biographies one day. This is orchestrated from the foundation of the earth. This is orchestrated. Day and night, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord 
God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So why, why is this important to us? I believe every single believer sitting in this room has a unique revelation of the personality of Jesus. So based on your walk with the Lord, your history with the Lord, anytime you share your testimony, your history with the Lord, it releases a new revelation of Jesus. It releases a new uh, facet of his nature and facet of his glory. I love hearing people's stories of how they came to, to know the Lord because it gives me a different revelation of who he is. Like, I love Larry Vizet's revelation of Jesus as the great evangelist. I love Lisa Lyman's revelation of Jesus as the great intercessor. I love uh, the gardener's uh, revelation of him as the one who is hospitable, the one who's a shepherd over people. I love coming underneath each other's umbrella of revelation. Pastor Bill, he shared this story. Um, there was a prophet named Dick Mills. How many of you have heard of Dick Mills before? Yeah, so um, this prophet, he would prophesy um, with scripture, with scripture and verse. So he would look at someone and not give a word of knowledge, but he would say, whatever, Isaiah 54, 5 over this person, just read the entire scripture without without a Bible in front of him. And I don't know if he memorized scriptures or if it was divinely imparted to him, but Bill shared this story that he was uh, at a conference with Dick Mills. And um, this, this prophet began prophesying. He said, okay, now I want Bill to come up and prophesy how I do with uh, chapter and verse. And Bill's like, what? That, that's what you flow in. That's not what I flow in. But when Bill stepped on stage, he said, it was almost like I came underneath this umbrella of, of, of anointing. And scripture started flowing from his mouth over people that he had never memorized before. And so I say all that to say we need to come underneath each other's umbrella of anointing. <laughs> we need to come underneath each other. And how do we do that? Through community, through fellowship. That, that's such an important aspect of the face of Jesus. Coming underneath each other's revelation of his face. So, all right. I want to move in now to the Beatitudes. Let's go ahead and go to the, the next slide, slide four. So, like, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I grew up in church, and I grew up my whole life hearing the word beatitude. And how many know familiarity can really numb your heart to the more God has for you? And so my heart for such a long time was so numbed to this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, because I didn't even know what the title meant. What does beatitude even mean? And so um, beatitude, in its, in its essence, means blessing, hence as Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Beatitudes are the blessing of God. But for me, I'm like, I, that word blessing in today's world has become so watered down and just relegated to meaning like God wants to bless you with a bigger house and better car. And I'm all for that. If God wants to hand out a house and a car, give it to me, Lord. But I want to say there is a higher calling than that when God is saying you are blessed. There's more than just material gain and wealth from that. God wants you blessed much more than you want to be blessed. So just, just take both stupid ideas and throw them out there that you think God doesn't want me blessed. And just, he does, he does, absolutely. But blessing has to go beyond bigger houses and bigger cars. There's a spiritual blessing that most of us won't even see until we get to the other side of eternity. So I want to break down that word blessing into the most specific definition. So the first definition is, of course, blessed are those. The second definition 
is instead of blessing, it means happy. In other words, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are meek. That word happy still doesn't do it for me. It's still not what I'm looking for. Happiness is such an up and down, like flagrant thing, and it's such a shallow emotion. And so the most specific definition in Hebrew of the word blessing is this, to have a vibrant heart. Or another way of saying that, that might sound, what, what does it mean to have a vibrant heart? To put it in our Christianese language, I want to say, to burn for Jesus. Do you know that feeling that you had when you first got saved? That vibrancy in your heart. And then you know when there's cold and callousness in your heart. So another way of reading this, Jesus is saying, you will have a vibrant heart when you are poor in spirit. You will have a vibrant heart when you are meek. You will have a vibrant heart when you are a peacemaker. This is the, the most specific definition to its core of what it means to be blessed. See, the world is searching for this vibrancy of heart. The world is seeking cathartic experiences to bring this deep satisfaction to make their hearts come alive. And the world will always offer a satisfaction that it can never deliver on. But Jesus is saying here, Within eight verses, he's saying, you pursue these eight virtues and you will have what society has been aching for ever since the dawn of man. You will have vibrancy in your heart. You will not be lacking anything in your soul. Whether you have a wallet that's filled or a wallet that's empty, you can have a vibrant heart. It is also, (laughs) this has nothing to do with salvation, by the way. I just want to make that distinction. Um, We don't do these for God's love. We do these in response to God's love right? And it would be such a disservice to you if I only taught you salvation and grace as the front door, but never taught you anything beyond that. Because yes, salvation and grace is the front door to the kingdom. However, it would be such a disservice to you because the way we get rewarded in the age to come is actually by pursuing these eight virtues. And so if I never teach you these eight virtues, you're not going to get the rewards in heaven that Jesus has made available. It's such a disservice if we just camp in one thing and there's a whole nother world beyond this. All right, it's, it's also very possible to be a born-again believer. You're going to heaven, but yet you can live your entire life on this earth with a heart that is cold and callous and apathetic towards Jesus. And he's saying right here, that is not the highest calling for you. I want you to have a life that is vibrant. I want you to have a heart that's burning for me. And so I can go ahead and go to the next slide. Just a breakdown of this, the Beatitudes. What, what I've heard many people say and what I like to say is that these are the constitution of our faith. Just as the founding fathers in our country formed the constitution as the supreme document to govern a nation by, Jesus gives us these Beatitudes as the supreme teaching to govern a life by. This is the constitution of our faith, these beatitudes. Can I meddle? Is that okay? All right. It is a problem if believers can quote YouTube prophets more than they can quote the beatitudes. I love prophecy. Don't get me wrong. But it is holier to walk in the Beatitudes and to embrace them than it is to prophesy pain off the walls. What did Jesus say? 
said, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, I prophesied. Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I walk in the gifts? The giftings are great. They will not determine my rewards in heaven, though. My fruit will, though. How I pursue Jesus in private will. My purity, my meekness, my lowliness, how I love my wife, that, that will establish my rewards in heaven, not my giftings. Another awesome thing right here. Two of the eight Beatitudes are present tense for this age to come. Uh, or two of the eight are present tense for this age, and six of the eight are, pre- are future tense for the age to come. So I think that 75% of the rewards or the promises in the Beatitudes, we won't even see until we get to the other side of eternity. <laughs> that, that's how impactful these are. About 25% of these promises in the Beatitudes we will see on this side, but 75%, we won't even see our rewards until we get to heaven on that side of eternity. Number three, in just eight verses, Jesus answers the cries of thousands of philosophers that have asked the questions for ages, how do we attain happiness? (laughs) It's been a burning question that philosophers for years, hundreds of books have been written. What is happiness? How do I attain happiness? Jesus says, here it is in eight verses. This is vibrancy. This is happiness. These eight virtues. Number four, this gives us a clear target of what God desires for our lives when we stand in the throne room. So Jesus does not let us aim in the dark in this, in this world right here. We're not, he's not giving us these as just a suggestion, a list of suggestions. These determine our place in eternity. They determine our proximity to the throne room. Number, what did I leave off? Number five. Gives us this, these give us Jesus' definition of true greatness and true kingdom success. These beatitudes, this is God's litmus test of what will matter in the throne room. We can go to the next slide. So after Jesus gives these beatitudes, what we tend to read is we tend to disjoint these eight virtues with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want to get at today is the whole thing stems from these first eight verses. And so after Jesus reads these eight verses, he goes into this. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of these commands, what, is he, what are the commands? The virtues, the beatitudes. If anyone sets these aside, in, in other words, if anyone ignores them or teaches others to ignore them, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You might say, I thought I was God's favorite. Well, you are, but he, yeah, right. She said it, I didn't say it, no. <laughs> but whoever practices and teaches these virtues or these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is incredible that Jesus' definition of greatness has nothing to do with influence, with wealth, with the things we think are great, it has nothing to do with the things he says are great. What does he says? What does he say the greatness is? Meekness, lowliness, purity. We're having Dwell Youth Conference in a couple weeks, and we're so excited for it. <laughs> and what I want to say is, we could have this conference, and we could have this room packed with a thousand teenagers. I don't think the fire department would let us do that, but we could have a thousand teenagers in the room. We could have our budget met, and I hope we do. I hope we have a thousand teenagers here. I hope we have the best time ever. We could have the perfect graphics, and we do have great graphics. We could have the best worship leaders, which I think we do. We could have all that. 
Yet if these teenagers do not leave this conference empowered and stirred up to walk in these eight virtues, it will not be successful in heaven's eyes. That's what Jesus is saying. I hope we have all that. But more than that, I want them to be commissioned to have a heart of purity. I want them to be commissioned to have a heart of meekness. Because if they leave without those, it is not great in the eyes of heaven. That's what he says. That's not what I say. That's what he says. 2 Kings 2.19 says, The city is pleasant to the eye, but the water source underneath is bad and the ground barren. I just want to say, I want to say it again. The city is pleasant to the eye, meaning that it's really, I don't want to, I don't want to step on toes, so I'm not going to say anything, but the city is pleasant. It's big. It looks like it's thriving. <laughs> However, inside the water is bad and the ground barren. I want to say it is very possible for a building to be filled with people yet empty of God. It is very possible. When Jesus addressed the church of Sardis, he said, what's happening outside your reputation? You have a reputation for being popular, for being great, for having a lot of people, for having a lot of wealth. However, when I cut you open and look inside of you, what's happening inside of you is not reflective of what's happening around you. <laughs> so I want to say Jesus is calling us. He's calling churches. He's calling people. Hey, yes, focus on your external world. Go get a great job. But more than that, emphasize beyond that meekness, purity, humility, poverty of spirit. That is how I will judge greatness in the age to come. That's, that's his standard, his litmus test for greatness in the age to come. And that there is a lot of talk nowadays that big church is bad church. And I, I just want to say that I know many, many great ministries who reach thousands of people who walk in these virtues of meekness and purity. And so big church doesn't mean bad church and small church doesn't mean it's anointed church. It's, it's like, is, are these eight virtues ingrained in the soil of this culture? That's the question. It doesn't matter if it's big, doesn't matter. It's just, is Jesus there? Are there, are there, is there fruit of meekness? Is there fruit of poverty of spirit? All right. Um, so in other words, slide seven, you could put that up. I don't want to go too far on this, but uh, I just want to say don't dream in terms of size or realm, or don't dream in terms of size, dream in terms of depths and realms in the presence of God. Don't dream in terms of size. Size cannot satisfy the soul. Size will not give you rewards in heaven. Not once does it say that you will be rewarded based on your ministry accomplishments or the size of your business. Those are great, but they just will burn up when you come before the throne room. And what will be left is, how did you love your family? How did you love your wife? Did you walk in meekness? Did you walk in purity? All right. Are these virtues attainable? Because I know sometimes we can look at things that God is asking us to do, and it's like, whoa, that is so beyond me. And, and what I want to say is that when I read these, I I read them instead of reading them as blessed are the poor in spirit. I hear the Holy Spirit saying, I will help you be poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. I hear Holy Spirit saying, I will help you be meek. We're not left on our own to walk this life. We have a helper called the Holy Spirit who's saying, I will help you be a peacemaker. I will help you have hunger and thirst in your hearts. All right. Okay, so what I, what I want to get at today, how do we grow these? How do we, how do we feed and water these virtues in the garden of our hearts. And 
The beautiful thing is in this same sermon, Jesus not only tells us to walk in these eight Beatitudes, but he almost takes us by the hand and gives us an in-depth instruction on how to walk in these. And if we read these eight virtues detached from the rest of Matthew 5, we're going to miss it. And so uh, the best illustration I can give, I, I played golf freshman year of high school. I did it just to get the PE credit. I, I didn't do it for any other reason than that. <laughs> I was terrible at golf. It was not good. And my coach was not the nicest person in the world. And so he would get really frustrated with me. It's just like he would try to show me what to do. He would s- swing and hit the ball. I'm like, just do that. Just Tanner, just do that. I'm like, I see the outcome, but how do I get to the outcome? <laughs> and then a family friend came and picked me up one day and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out. I'm going to teach you some golf lessons. And so he took me to a driving range. And first he showed me the outcome. He showed me that's the end result. Now I'm going to take you step by step on how to get that end result. And he said, here's your form. You want your arm like this. You want to swing like this, little by little. And as the more I did it, the more I was getting the result in the end. And I want to say Jesus presents these virtues the same way in the scriptures. He starts by showing us the result of what he wants, of meekness, purity, all that. And then the rest of the, the Matthew 5, he shows us the how on how to do it. And the best way I can illustrate this is I just want you to picture these virtues as a garden in in your heart. So picture your heart as a garden. And these eight virtues are eight flowers that God wants to grow into full maturation in your life. So the seed has been planted. When you were born again, become a Christian, God planted the seed. He changed your identity. It's already in there. However, in order to grow these virtues into full maturation, Jesus gives us five activities to embrace or what to water our garden with. And he also gives us six temptations to resist or how to weed our garden, what to weed out of the garden of our hearts. So he's basically saying, this is what I want for you. These, this meekness, purity, hunger. This is how you get it, by watering and weeding the garden of your heart. And so some of these, uh, I want to read through some of these activities to embrace. He talks about prayer. Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you. When, when you pray to your father in secret, then your father who sees everything will reward you. Fasting, Matthew 6, 16. When you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. So, so this is all part of Matthew 5. Giving, serving, blessing our enemies. Temptations to resist. You see all those up there. So some camps only focus on the resisting. I mean, you've seen sin-conscious camps of what not to do. That's all they tell you is what not to do. And the thing is, we become whatever we behold. So if I am continual beholding what I don't want to become, I'm going to eventually become what I don't want to (laughs) become. But if I behold Jesus rightly through prayer, fasting, giving, serving, blessing my enemies, I'm going to produce that in my life. And what I have to watch out for are these six temptations to resist. Anger, immorality, disregarding the marriage covenant, making false commitments, demanding personal rights, living with the spirit of retaliation. We need both the watering and the weeding of our garden. All right. Uh, I want to just give some examples. I want to go ahead and go into the first beatitude. I just want to, Pastor Nicole already did this so well, so I just want to give some examples of how the watering and the weeding fuels 
the, the, the outcome of what we're wanting to get. And so I, I went through just a few of these Beatitudes. I might hit one or two today, and we'll see. I might do a part two. Um, but the first one, if we can go to the next slide. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. I, I was thinking about poverty of spirit, and I was thinking if I could just pick two activities that stick out to me most out of these five, which ones would they be? And I put prayer and serving. There, I'm sure all of them give you poverty of spirit, but I just, for the sake of this teaching, I wanted to say if there were two I could choose, what would I choose? Temptations to resist. If there, were, if there was one temptation that chokes out poverty of spirit more than the rest, I put demanding personal rights, or another way of saying it is spiritual entitlement. That's what I would say. So being poor in spirit is the foundational beatitude. As Pastor Nicole said, this is, this, they are continuous. So this is like that first domino that you tip over that the other dominoes fall with it. It's very difficult, maybe impossible, to possess meekness if I'm first not poor in spirit. It's very difficult to ha- be a peacemaker if I am first don't have that foundation of poverty of spirit. And so uh, being poor in spirit, I believe it's one of the most difficult kingdom are kingdom realities to articulate it's really hard to put into words it's much better experienced than explained Um, but it is the most rewarding when you have it and from my experience uh, poverty of spirit is it's really the most costly of the eight to attain and it is the most easiest to lose the most easiest to extinguish and so poverty of spirit activities to embrace prayer I just want to say prayer kills spiritual entitlement. Prayer kills entitlement in our hearts. One of my main go-to prayers every day is, Lord, make me so deeply aware of how I need you. God, I, I don't trust my own flesh. Lord, infuse in me a poverty of spirit, a spirit of poverty. So in, in its most simple definition, poverty of spirit is those who have a profound sense and awareness of need for God. That provokes them to have more of God. Serving. In other words, what I like to say with serving, it's, it's not merely just serving your church, although that's a part of it. But serving, I like to say this, is coming underneath and submitting to people who burn for Jesus more than you do <laughs> or who have more than you do. See, our culture right now is teaching us to be jealous and entitled when people have more than you do. But Jesus is saying, this is an upside down kingdom. You, if you want what they have, maybe they have a job that you thought was yours, serve them, come under them, begin to serve that person. One of the fastest ways in my life that spiritual poverty grows is when I expose my heart to people who are closer to Jesus than I am or who burn for God more than I am. My favorite food in the world is Puerto Rican food. (laughs) So Puerto Rican back there. The thing is, Puerto Rican food was not my favorite food my whole life. Why? Because I wasn't exposed to Puerto Rican food until I started dating Emily. Then once I tasted it, I'm like, oh, wow, where, where did this come from? I, I went my whole life without this. And I want to say this, that we cannot hunger for something that our hearts have not been exposed to. We, we can't get a taste for something in God that we first haven't been exposed to. 
I believe that's the reason why many of you are in this room right now, because maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you were listening to Dave and Nicole on TBN maybe and heard, I'm ready for deeper. I'm like, oh, what are they, what are they feasting on? I, I must have that. I can't stay where I'm at right now. See, hunger, that, it provokes us to say, I, I want what they're eating, and I don't care what it costs. I want to get that right there. That is spiritual poverty, serving, becoming aware of how deeply you need the Lord. Okay, I want to say one more thing about this, and then I'll close. Uh, what temptation do I need to resist with spiritual poverty? Demanding personal rights or spiritual entitlement. When we were going off to, to Bible school, um, and please know I honor every place where I come from. I honor, I honor just our, our story, our upbringing. Um, when we were transitioning out to, to go to Bible school, there are many well-meaning voices, well-meaning voices that that were saying things like, you don't need to go anywhere to get more of God. Uh, you can have everything you need right here. You, you don't need, you know, we're, you have everything here. Uh, one person actually said, you're going to go there and start teaching them uh, how to lead worship and how to preach. I'm like, I can't imagine sitting in front of Stephanie Gretzinger or Bill Johnson and saying, this is how you do it. And the heart was there. Anytime you're plowing with someone and God sends you away, there's this, you know, no one wants to see people leave. So I get it. But at the end of the day, I don't want a mentality in my heart that I'm the last Coke in the desert. <laughs> I don't want a mentality in my heart that says, I've got everything I need here. No good here. See, that communicates a dangerous thing. That communicates to God that I'm leveling off with you here, that I've reached my cap, that there's nothing more you can give me, there's nothing more I can grow in your presence, I'm good. That, is, that wars against poverty of spirit. That wars against the more of God. The moment we think we have seen it all in God is the moment we choose to level off spiritually. There's always more of him to be tasted. See, what, what Jesus gives us an illustration for how to multiply in our lives. So we talked about it. He multiplied bread and fish. And so the principle still stays the same for spiritual multiplication. <laughs> so what were the ingredients needed for the multiplication of the bread and fish? Well, hunger. The people were hungry. And, and then gratitude. What did Jesus say? Lord, I give thanks for this meal. And what happened? <laughs> multiplication. So if you want to multiply your spiritual life, what I like to say is be grateful for what you have because gratefulness, uh, if you don't have gratefulness and you just have hunger, you're just gonna get mad really. <laughs> like, <laughs> but if you have gratitude without hunger, you're just gonna be complacent. But when I come to this place, where I'm like, Lord, I remember my history with you. Thank you. Oh, for how you touched me when I was seven, when I was 14, when I was 21. Thank you. Oh, but God, you have so much more. So I ask, give me more, Lord. Give me more. That is Jesus' recipe for spiritual multiplication. Thank you, but show me more. Thank you, but show me more. All right. Um, I could have keys come up, and I'll just go ahead and close. I want to skip, I just did number one, the first beatitude. I want to go ahead and just jump to the fourth one. I know I'm getting a little scattered out here, but I just want to give you guys this for the sake of understanding how to grow these virtues in our hearts. So I want to go to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think that's slide 12, the last slide. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. That 
that word satisfied. Have you ever read something in scripture and something just grabs your heart? Like a word just grabs your heart. That word has just been grabbing my heart recently, satisfied. You know, I believe every issue of life that you could ever walk in is a satisfaction issue. Every issue of life comes down to a satisfaction issue. The desire to be seen. Uh, they, they don't see my gifting. They don't see what's on my life. Are you satisfied in secret? <laughs> and I know that's so easy for me to say being up on a stage, but I've been on the other side of this thing. And I know what it is to, to be in the dark. And can you find him in secret? Because if he can satisfy you in secret, you won't need people to satisfy you in public. Can you find that in secret? Can you find that in secret, that satisfaction? Jealousy. What is jealousy? Man, they got the promotion I wanted. <laughs> Are you satisfied in secret? Are you satisfied? I know it's not fair, like, but are you satisfied? Will that job meet that place in your heart that only Jesus can meet? Uh, any sin issue, lust, it's a satisfaction issue. The Lord's not touching a place in your heart that you feel you need to replace with lust and pornography and, and all these things. Satisfaction. Any time I see these <laughs> ugly, fleshly things come up in my heart, I try to, my quickest to submit them to the Lordship of Jesus. See, what I, what I told the youth recently is your maturity in the Lord is based entirely on your ability to submit trauma, pain, and tragedy to the feet of Jesus. <laughs> that is what determines your maturity. You could still be going to heaven. You will still be going to heaven. But I want to live spiritually mature on this side of eternity. I want, to, I want all that he has for me. I don't want to just get a front door ticket and I'm good. No, I, I want to live for something in the throne room on the other side of eternity. The best story I have in my life to illustrate uh, satisfaction. Like the youth are probably tired of this story. I share it so much, but... Uh, I remember very, very vividly the night that I felt God speak to me and say, Emily was gonna be my wife. <laughs> I remember it so vividly. And of course, I didn't wanna seem like a freak and tell her, hey, you're my wife, don't do that. <laughs> but um, I just went alone with the Lord and pondered it. And uh, I, I realized, Lord, you're, you're gonna have to take these feelings from me because they just keep getting more and more. And she has a boyfriend, God, what am I gonna do? <laughs> And, and the more I spent time with her, the more I was just like, oh, I feel like this, she's my wife. And so long story short, ended up uh, taking a break with her boyfriend and she started talking to me. <laughs> and thank God, right? I'm the kind of person though, who I put my entire emotions into a thing whenever, you know, so I put immediately my entire satisfaction, whether or not I was happy or sad, my joy was complete immediately into one person, which is more than a person should ever handle, is a, is a happiness. And so uh, a couple weeks went by and she was kind of going through her own thing with the Lord and she ended up getting back with her boyfriend and I was just crushed. I was like, Lord, what happened? I was, I know, the story gets better though. <laughs> She's having my baby, so obviously we're good. <laughs> the Lord worked it out in the end. But uh, 
It was like a six month period of just this thing of being like, Lord, I need you to be my satisfaction. I need you to do something in my heart. And I went to Redding, California to do a two week worship school. And in that, in one worship set, the Helsers, Jonathan and Melissa were singing this song. And I was hearing Melissa Helser at the time sharing she had cancer and then God healed her from cancer and then the cancer came back. So it's like this roller coaster. And yet she is up on the stage singing this song that says this, faithful and true, mighty to save. He is a good, good God <laughs> with cancer in her body. And, and I'm thinking she has something that I don't have because I'm been out of shape because the girl doesn't like me. <laughs> but I, I'm like, Lord, I don't know if I could sing this to you. How, how can she sing this if the circumstances have not been good? And I felt like he, he came so close to me. I don't have these experiences often, but he, I felt like he whispered in my heart and said, my goodness, my faithfulness is not based on what I do for you. It's based on who I am to you. It's based on the internal satisfaction. And immediately that disappointment that I was caring for so long, it just broke over me. And I just began singing, you're faithful, you're good. Lord, you're true. Lord, you're beautiful. Lord, you're faithful. That is how authority latches on to your worship is when in the midst of that, you can still have a, relationship, a revelation of his goodness. Never let your external circumstances change your revelation of God's goodness. We did a Q&A session with, with the youth recently, and one of the questions was like, why do, why do terrible things happen to us as believers? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but what I, what I figured out is don't ever replace, don't ever let what you don't know replace what you do know in God. And what I do know is that I have encounters with the face of Jesus that are more real to me than any pain, any tragedy that the enemy could ever throw at me. He is more real to me than anything, any disappointment, any tragedy. Yes, this thing is real. This tragedy is real. This pain is real. I don't understand it. But what I do understand is that he's good, that he is faithful, that he is beautiful, that he is wonderful. I went, I went home after that two-week experience. And well, actually, I forgot to say this. That night after I had that encounter, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was watching Emily get married to another man. And in the dream, the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and said, will you still be satisfied if this happens? Am I still your great reward even if this happens? Will you still love me just as much whether you get this or whether you don't get this? Will your worship still remain vibrant? Will your worship still remain the same? I said, yes, Jesus. I'll love you even if this happens. Even if my greatest fear happens, I'll love you. You're still good. It doesn't change your goodness. It doesn't change your faithfulness. It might hurt. It will hurt. It'll be tearful. It'll be painful. But God, I have you touching this deep place in my heart that no spouse could touch, God. I'm grateful, so grateful for, for Emily and our coming baby. But there's a place in every soul that a spouse can't touch. There's a place in every soul that a baby can't touch. There's a place in the heart that only his glory can touch, that his presence can satisfy. So I came back home and I began 
Anytime that disappointment came, I'd say, I know what to do with this. I know what to do about you. God, you're good. Lord, you're faithful. Lord, you're perfect. And that disappointment would break. And that's been a key. I call it a key of David that, that I've had my entire life. The Lord taught me, gave me a key in that season that I have kept with me. I'm 28 years old. And anytime something has thrown, been thrown at me of disappointment, of tragedy, I have a key. I know how to break this right here. I, I know it's a satisfaction issue. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.